You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, a preview of the Taste of Asia Festival. That's coming up on Canada Day weekend. Also ahead, we continue to celebrate Pride Month right across the region. But we begin with a unique story about a father's struggle and his son's special tribute. Jim Lang takes it from here. Father's Day means a lot of things to a lot of people. And uh, Andrew Kimmel is a fascinating individual. Uh, His resume is basically, well, almost beyond reproach. He's done a bit of everything in television and web producing with The Bachelor and BuzzFeed and you name it. But he also has a more compelling story to tell about the story of his relationship with his father, who has an even more fascinating resume. And Andrew joins us on the feed. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? Excellent. It's your tweet thread, your tweet story about your father, his time as a medic in Vietnam, not in Vietnam, but it's spent in the Army, building a life, building a family, uh, hit a nerve with a lot of people. Why Why did you feel the need to do it? Well, um, you know, the, that's a very good question. I, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me was is the fact that there's a very large stigma against mental health. Uh, particularly in, in America, um, and nobody talks about it. And it's something that affects so many of us here in this country, and I know around the world, but in this country particularly, no one talks about it when it is tearing families apart. And there's no support system here in the United States. We don't get it from our government. We're not getting it from our hospitals. The only ones that we have for support is the family. And when that starts to fall apart, there's nothing. And, and so by putting my dad's story out there, by putting my story out there and my experience, uh, my hope is that we can at least open this up and have a conversation, um, at least to get more support for mental illness around the country. I know growing up myself, my dad was in the military, and the first time I saw him cry, I was a little shocked because I thought he was pretty much invincible, and dads never do things like that. When did, when was your first time, Andrew, you thought, well, maybe my dad needs some help or he has a problem? Well, uh, oh, man, yeah, that's, uh, that is certainly the same mindset I had about thinking my dad was invincible. Um, I think the real major moment came, it actually came in a text. Um, my dad sent me a text message saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I don't know what else I can do, but I need, I need to borrow money. Hmm. And I didn't know how to even respond because, you know, first I, I know it took a lot for my dad to even do something like that. Um, but it meant he was in a really bad spot because, you know, I, I'm not someone who makes that much money myself. And, and, you know, for my dad to ask me, I mean, it it just, it proved to me that things really were, were not doing so well for him. Being a father is never easy. My wife and I, we have two teenage daughters and there's good days and bad days. And sometimes you learn things from different people as difficult as this whole thing has been. And in sharing the story, 
Has it made you a better person and a better individual, better father, better everything, Andrew? I think, you know, my experience with everything that happened has made me more um, empathetic towards others. Um, you know, I, I, I think for me, it's, it's looking at people and, and realizing that everybody is fighting a battle, whether you know it or not, whether they mention it or not. Um, and so, you know, I, it's, it's opened me up to, to having a bigger heart and, and being more understanding of others. Um, and then also on top of that, it's, it's truly valuing the time that we have with our parents. You know, we might think, oh, you know, they might call you four times a day or five times a day, like my parents did. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would ignore it or brush them off and, and, you know, I, I regret that now. I wish, I wish there was more time, you know, and I know everybody says that it's quite cliche, but, you know, value the time that you have with your family and your loved ones. I know for a lot of people listening to this, Andrew, they're thinking, geez, what about me? Do I know someone? How, how can I help? What can we do to change the narrative just in general society and within the political narrative to do something about it, to treat mental health like we do cancer or other diseases? Well, um, you know, on a personal level, I would say that people should ask their friends questions. You know, how is your family? How is everything going? Um, how is your sister? How is your father? You know, just, just striking up a conversation. Because when people, you know, ever ask me that, I am now very open with them. Um, and I let them know exactly what's been going on with my family, which... You know, I don't know if that's what they're looking for, but at least it, it, for me, it's therapeutic just to get off my chest. Um, but in terms of the larger picture, um, you know, people need to mobilize and, and, and band together to, to, to get some sort of change. Um, I don't know how it is with, with, you know, you guys in Canada, but here in, in the United States, you know, we have a lot of issues with our health system. Um, and unfortunately, the care is incredibly expensive. It's, it doesn't cover most mental health uh, uh, situations. And it puts hardworking Americans and those even paying uh, a lot of money for private insurance, it leaves them with massive bills, which they can't afford. And so there needs to be serious change. And the only way to get serious change is if all the people come together and, and demand it. And uh, I don't know how else we can get it done, but there needs to be a, a, a very large movement in this country, which I think is starting. Um, and particularly with our 2020 elections coming up, healthcare has become, you know, a, a front and center issue. So, you know, my hope is that some, something will change uh, and we have to all work together to do it. Speaking with Andrew Kimmel on the feed and Andrew, I applaud your attitude when people ask you how you're doing that actually telling them because so many people say I'm fine and we just leave it at that. And what really hit home for me was growing up Robin Williams. I always thought was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And to find out how he ended his life was such a shock to me. And then to delve deeper into his own personal demons, it, it was a real educational moment for me. I, I just didn't think it was possible, but I realized, as you said earlier, we don't know what's really going on with people unless we really get into it. Yeah, it's 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 true. But even if even if you do get into it, you know, there's no guarantee, and it's it's something that I my looking back at my conversations with my dad the day before even 
you know, there were, he, he gave me hints and I, I never ever expected in a million years that this would have happened. And then of course, after it happened, I said, Oh my God, why, how could I miss that? And you know, it's just, you, you look up to certain people and you just never could imagine this is the direction that they'll, they'll take. As so, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's no guarantee, man. Even if you ask somebody. No, no, Andrew, I, I hear you loud and clear. And, and, you know, as difficult as it was the way your dad ended his life, th- there must be some good memories that when you think back of your life and your childhood and your time with your dad, some memories that you hang on to that do bring a smile to your face. Are there any that come to mind? Yeah. Um, I think the, the best memory that I had was I graduated my university in, in 2008 and, you know, uh, we were living in New Jersey at the time, and we we ended up driving cross country, both my dad and myself, to to California when I moved. And so, you know, I, I was documenting the trip, and um, we we spent a lot of time together, just driving from from the East Coast to the West Coast, and had a really great time. You know, we went through Vegas, we got pulled over in Arizona for speeding, and you know, just <laughs> little moments here and there, and. and you know, there was this moment when I eventually dropped my dad off at the airport and um, he gave me a hug and I hugged him hard back and both of us were crying, but neither of us admitted to crying because we were wearing our sunglasses because we both know we both knew that that was the, you know, the end of a chapter and the start of something new. That's, so that's I think, the best memory I have. I, I think a lot of people listening, a lot of sons and their dads would think that's a beautiful memory to have, Andrew. I, I applaud you for sharing your story, and thank you so much. And uh, that is a beautiful way to end the interview. All the best, my friend, and uh, continue success trying to change the narrative so we deal with mental health in a more serious way in society going forward. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. A pleasure, Andrew. Talk soon. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Our next guest on the feed is Christina Bizanz, and she is the CEO of Chats. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you for having me here. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Chats? What is it and its history? Yes, Chats is a charitable organization, and, and it stands for Community and Home Assistance to Seniors. We were formed about 39 years ago by a group of volunteers in the community who felt that there was a real need to provide some supports to seniors living in their own homes to help keep them in their own homes, to enable them to live independently and safely as long as possible. Over um, the time that we've been around, we've expanded quite a lot. We now serve some 8,500 seniors and their family caregivers throughout York Region and South Simcoe. We have uh, just over 300 staff as well as um, a group of some 500 volunteers who donate their time to help us support that original objective of enabling seniors to live independently, safely, and most importantly, with dignity in their own homes as long as possible. And I think you said so many key and important things there. 
uh, living with dignity, living in their own home. I think, and I've heard that personally, how, you know, I remember my grandmother who wanted to remain in her home as long as possible. And that is important to so many seniors, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, if you were to ask anybody what their, what their hope and plan is, is that they'd be able to live in their own homes, whether those are, are single family homes or apartments or what have you, but to, to have that independence and to be able to stay in the community rather than in hospital, emergency rooms, or long-term care facilities. And what are the benefits and value of home and community care for caregivers and seniors? Well, I think, first of all, it uh, enables seniors to be able to stay at home uh, with, as I said earlier, the, the kind of support, whether it's it's a personal support worker who comes in and helps with with bathing or meal preparation or medication reminders, um, helping them to stay engaged in their communities through our uh, social and wellness programs or our adult day programs, which are located throughout uh, York Region, uh, helping them with transportation getting them to medical appointments, grocery shopping, banking, or even to social activities. Meals on Wheels is another program that we have to help people make sure that they, in a convenient way, are able to maintain their their nutrition. So many other programs as well and services that we offer uh, to people to help them live in the community. How does a senior and their caregivers, their family, how do they access CHATS? Well, most of the programs they can access just by giving us a call. Our number is 7105-713-6596 or emailing us at seniorshelp at chats.on.ca. Um, and they can give us a call and, and uh, we'll do an intake on the phone depending on the kind of services they're looking for. We do have uh, uh, a few programs where you actually have to have a referral through uh, the Lynn Home and Community Care. So uh, they'll do the assessment and intake and then give the referral to us. And that's for our assisted living program, for example, or our adult day programs. But most of the other programs and services, people can just pick up the phone, give us a call or uh, contact us by email. And so anyone can qualify? Do you have to be a certain age? Well, most of our programs are for adults, older adults, and we say people who are 55 or older, or even adults who have an age-related condition. So we have clients who are younger who have, for example, Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or challenges with arthritis. So we look at each individual case uh, to see if, if they would be eligible or if our programs are really appropriate for them. So I know you mentioned some of these programs already, but what supports and services are available for caregivers and seniors through CHATS? Well, one of the uh, big programs that we have of importance to family caregivers are our respite programs. So those are services where we may send uh, a personal support worker into the home for a few hours to give the caregiver a much-needed break. 
you know, often caregivers really become overwhelmed and a, a sense of, of being burdened by having to care for their loved one, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a family member, or, um, a neighbor even. And, um, Helping them care for their needs sometimes means that, that the caregiver themselves are close to or are burned out. So our respite services are a big help. We also have a number of uh, education programs that we offer at no charge at all to caregivers in the community where they can come out and learn about things like, like um, what it means to be a uh, power of attorney, understanding wills and estate planning, understanding how they can care for themselves, their own uh, wellness and well-being. We also have some support groups where caregivers come together and um, support one another through through some of the challenges they have in their journey as caregivers. And we also offer some counseling. So those are some of the um, activities and programs for family caregivers. Um, then, of course, we have a number of programs and services for, for seniors themselves. And I'm assuming that some of those programs or many of those programs would help to keep a senior not only in their home, but also reduce the number of visits to a hospital or a doctor. Absolutely, because if we can prevent some of the issues that that uh, lead to emergency room visits or um, having to, to go to hospital. Obviously, we do want people to keep up with their family doctor visits and so forth. But if we could help them with things like making sure that their, their home is safe to avoid the potential for falls, Falls is one of the key reasons that older adults end up in hospital or in emergency rooms. And then from there, they may not be able to, to uh, uh, come home again if they, you know, are, have had a serious fall and, and uh, maybe require hip and knee replacements as a result or, or even worse. So we look at ways in which we can support the wellness and well-being, um, the prevention of reasons that, that people might end up in hospital. And can we plan ahead to help seniors age in place? Absolutely. There are a number of things that people can do. And I think that that preparedness is, is the key point. Um, so, Looking around the home that somebody lives in, is there a need to adapt that home to help people be able to stay there? For example, um, you know, putting grab bars in the in the bathroom and around the shower, or uh, looking at ways to um, eliminate trip and fall hazards in the home. There are a number of things that chats can provide support with. We have a home uh, adaptation and maintenance program uh, for um, the areas north of, of Newmarket. And in that, we will provide somebody to come in and do an assessment of the home and give some recommendations on on how that home can be adapted to help somebody stay a little bit longer in, in their home. If you could do anything to improve home and community care in Ontario, what would you do? I think what we first of all need is is a recognition that um, 
seniors do want to stay at home. And we have to be able to resource those services more effectively and uh, more substantively so that um, the sector is able to meet the demands of a growing seniors population. In York Region, we have one of the fastest growing demographics of seniors. And we need to be able to ensure that that the services are well supported and resourced in order to ensure that we then are able to meet the needs of of the people in our community who are aging. I think there's also an important need to ensure that um, there are supports in place to encourage um, people to see um, the, the role of personal support workers as an attractive career opportunity. We're facing a shortage of personal support workers or PSWs in the community. And they're so vital to being able to deliver the services that CHATS and other organizations are offering. Are there um, training uh, services for PSWs? There are. Programs, um, programs are available through community colleges. Um, there were programs at one time through some of the, the private institutions, but certainly community colleges offer um, certification for personal support workers. Uh, but it's a challenge because the demand is really outstripping the supply of, of uh, personal support workers. So that's another area where we feel that there needs to be government attention paid to looking at how we can um, encourage and support more opportunities for PSWs to be trained and to be certified. Would every senior qualify for chats or um, is there a certain income level that you need to maintain in, in order to qualify? Uh, certainly not. Anybody can have uh, access to the chat services. Most of our programs do have a moderate fee attached and uh, we do look at, at uh, doing um, an in- income assessment uh, to determine the fee level, but we certainly don't want to turn anybody away for lack of ability to pay for our services. Now, Christina, you mentioned your phone number and email. Can we uh, remind our listeners one more time, if they need more information on chats, how they can connect? They can contact us by telephone at 905-713-6596 or by email at seniorshelp, all one word, at chats, C-H-A-T-S dot O-N dot C-A. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. And happy Seniors Month. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for replay. Next, if you have a young person in your household looking for a summer job, Afwaba has some expert advice. If you are a student or you are just somebody in need of a job and you don't know where to go and who you can speak to to get some help, I have the perfect person here to help you out throughout this summer and moving forward in general. Joining me to chat today is Bryn Left, who is the Country General Manager at Kelly Services. Bryn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. All right. So first off, let's let the listeners know what Kelly Services is all about. 
Well, Kelly Services is a recruitment um, firm, and we focus on finding candidates' um, jobs and careers, and we help companies uh, consult for their uh, workforce management needs. Perfect. Okay, so there is a, a perfect balance in terms of the relationship between the employee and the employer in terms of you helping both sides. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Not a problem. All right. So um, how long has Kelly Services been running in Canada for? We, we're uh, approaching our 60th uh, anniversary here oh, in Canada. Nice. Okay. So then um, for those uh, who are on the employee side, um, and they need help. Let's maybe start off with students. Um, maybe this is going to be their first summer job. Uh, what tips do you have for them in terms of getting out there into the workforce? Well, one of the um, one of the misnomers of uh, of the job hunt, if you will, is this hidden job market. And a lot of students will go to your most popular, you know, job posting sites, and they'll apply for various types of jobs. But we encourage students to um, really network and network with um, their, you know, parents, colleagues, or a variety of different people that might be looking for students um, over the summer. And um, there are more jobs within the hidden job market than there are, in fact, uh, jobs that are posted. So lots of networking, which I think is very successful for, for students when they're looking for, for work. Okay, so I'm going to touch on two things that you mentioned here, which is the hidden job market and networking. Um, let's start with networking because that that word is is passed around a lot, and it might seem a bit daunting because they 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 ask themselves, well, how do I put myself out there? In part apart from just going, hey, I need a job. Can you give me a job? How do you make yourself presentable so that the employer would uh, take them up on that offer? Well, I think the easiest way to do it is through, I would say, a warm introduction. So anybody that they already have in their network, it could be their friends, parents, it could be friends and family who are already in the um, job market where they can help them make the introduction, the warm introduction. That's the easiest way to do it. And it doesn't matter who you are. You you know someone out there who's working in the, you know, whatever, whatever um, capacity that they're working in. I mean, one of the things that we always encourage is students focus on the field of interest as opposed to just jumping into a hospitality job if this is not an area in where they want to focus. So talk to people, talk to students, talk to students' uh, parents who are working in their similar field and say, hey, um, can I meet your dad and maybe they can um, help me um, introduce myself to a variety of people within the field uh, over the summer so that maybe I can do some work. Okay. So I think that's one way of doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So then that, that requires then a little bit of getting out of your shell as opposed to maybe just talking amongst friends. Um, I guess maybe that also would help them build their people skills overall since everything is basically through um, their phones right now. <laughs> yeah. Yes. A lot of it's digital for sure. And, you know, I think it will start there. But ultimately, you're going to build that relationship in a face-to-face setting. Uh, which is highly encouraged. The, the, the other thing that's important is um, a lot of students will try to find work within their, um, where, where they're living. So if they're, say, for example, in Toronto, they might be looking for work in Toronto, but one of the things that we encourage st- students to do is look at some remote areas where they're looking for individuals. There are pockets all over Canada, of course, but certainly Ontario, where the unemployment is very low with not a lot of um, active um, individuals looking for work. 
Um, so it's it's an opportunity to focus on your field of interest, but you have to to be open minded as far as you know relocating or staying somewhere over the summer. Got it. Okay, so um, keeping an open mind um, and of course um, talking to uh, parents, uh, friends, parents, and whatnot in order to sort of tap into the hidden job market, if you will. Those are the first two things that I got, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So then let's move on to uh, preparing a resume. Instead of just putting on a jumble of words, how do they, um, you know what, put something up together, um, even if they don't have any experience within the job market? And then maybe also touching about, uh, a bit on cleaning up their social media before uh, putting themselves out there. Right. Well, let's start with the resume uh, and cover letter. The, the biggest mistake candidates uh, make as it relates to their resume is not accurately putting the correct keywords on their resume. When you have applicant tracking systems, which most, most organizations have, they will filter through keywords. And if those keywords are not allocated or, or stated properly on a resume, um, they, they have a tendency to filter out those resumes. So you want to really understand the keywords and to put them on the resume. Obviously, having great grammar and spelling all uh, very important. Uh, but the keyword keyword um, placement and the type of keywords you use is um, is critical in the job job uh, search when you apply online. How does one identify keywords, though? You do research. So when you you can you can go to um, your, your search engine and you can literally look up uh, examples within a particular field and the proper keywords to use. The other thing that I encourage people to do is go to a staffing firm like a Kelly Services and speak with a consultant about the proper keywords to use in a particular um, industry or what, what job that they're looking for, and recruiters will absolutely know um, the keywords to use. Awesome. Okay, that's great information there. And then also touching a bit upon uh, maybe social media and how important it is to clean it up uh, before putting themselves out there towards employers. Yeah, that. You know, interestingly enough, what many people don't understand is when references are, are done and uh, employers are doing background checks on candidates, they do look at their social media sites, Facebook, what have you, and they want to understand what type of character they are hiring. And so ensuring that your Twitter accounts and your Facebook account and Instagram or what have you is cleaned up. That is really important because be rest assured that more employers today are looking, um, you know, looking at those accounts to ensure, you know, what kind of individual they're hiring. Fair enough. And it's as simple as that, too. Awesome. OK, so let's switch over to the employer side. Um, and let's say they, a company comes to you and says they need help uh, trying to sift out um, getting the, the employees that they need that would best fit their company. How can an employer do that? So an employer will, you know, it's, it's about the profile that they're looking for, and, and staffing firms have the most advanced um, technology as it relates to assessment and also very specialized individuals that know how to assess um, the candidates coming through. So the employer uh, will really talk about, you know, certainly the requirements of the job, 
But where the magic comes in is really the culture, the type of environment, the type of uh, interpersonal skills that they're looking for. And that's where a recruiter really adds value at this point is to really identify fit uh, with the candidate to the employer. Awesome. Okay. So again, that's what Kelly Services does. They they provide for both sides. And it was really great information in terms of how to help students secure that summer job. Um, and then just maybe some general last uh, tips for anyone that is really trying to get into the workforce um, and trying to find any job, whether it might be just for a summer job or even long term. What can they do? What are some more tips you can provide? You know, this world of the gig economy where it's continually, uh, continuing to grow you're starting to see um, sites like Upwork that specialize in independent contractors to do a variety of assignments. And so if you have a particular skill set, whether it's in programming, IT, it could be design, it could be writing, you know, a lot of um, students now are opening up their own little practice. You know, they're setting up their own little companies and they're working with sites like Upwork to, um, to work on a variety of assignments. So don't be afraid to kind of put your shing- shingle out there and say, you know, I've got my own business and this is the type of work I can work uh, that I can do and using platforms like Upwork to facilitate that. And you're seeing that more and more um, go on because if individuals are not finding work, guess what they're doing? They're, they're, they're setting up their own practice. And that seems to be working very nicely in, in this gig economy. That's awesome information there. And as you just mentioned, it's not necessarily the traditional type of style of finding work now. Um, more people are trying to meld into their own form of trying to work. If they can't get the traditional thing, they'll do it on their own. And it seems to be still working with the economy. It still seems like the economy um, has enough space to, to provide and to offer uh, people who want to work within their own terms. Yeah, and, you know, the, the, the unemployment remains you know, quite low in Canada and in Ontario, certainly. But students should be looking for industries that have spikes during the summer. And it could be hospitality, construction, tourism, recreation. And look at your skill set within that industry because there is a demand there, um, you know, more of an increased demand, if you will, uh, in, those, in those industries. Awesome. Okay, so Bryn, where can residents go for more information about Kelly Services? You can go to our website, kellyservices.com. That's the easiest way. And um, a couple of other things I'd like to add Mm -hmm. as well is there are specific uh, websites that are very effective for um, students or entry-level positions, like Talent Egg is a a website that specializes in summer jobs and or in internships with uh, top employers. So that's, you know, don't think you have to go to your, the main um, job posting sites to kind of get yourself out there. Look at the smaller niche sites as well because they're very effective. Perfect. Brent, thank you so much for uh, joining me today, giving us some uh, great tips out there for anyone who wants to get a job. Uh, students or anyone that's looking out there, don't just go through the traditional realm. There are so many ways to, to get out there into the workforce. I do suggest that you highly take these tips into account. Brent, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region and beyond. Our next story is about a celebration of Pride Month. Netta Sarshar with the story. 
June is Pride Month, and we in York Region are so fortunate to have a host of organizations partaking in activities meant to provide support and solidarity to LGBT community members and their families. Joining me today to speak about the importance of creating inclusive spaces is Reverend James Ravenscroft of the Richmond Hill United Church. The RHUC is celebrating its sixth year as an affirming ministry and has been highly active in the York Region community in creating safer spaces for all community members. Thank you so much for joining us, James. I'm glad to be with you. So what does it mean to be an affirming ministry? The affirming ministry process began in the United Church of Canada just before and in the lead-up after United Church of Canada made its historic decision in 1988 in regard to accepting LGBTQ2 people within ministry and as full members of the church in all aspects of life. But churches being churches, that was rolled out in a way in which every congregation was given its own uh, decision-making process. They could uh, sign on or sign off on that. And so the affirming ministry process began as a way for churches to really intentionally look at what it meant for all people within uh, sexual minorities and gender identity minorities to be uh, welcomed, to be able to fully participate in absolutely every single aspect of the church's life. And so churches that go through the affirming ministry process uh, look at their own biases, uh, they look at their own history, they struggle with uh, biblical texts, which in the tradition have been used as what are known as clobber passages. Uh, they really face the darkness of our history as, as churches, which has been to hurt and to oppress and to malign uh, LGBTQ people. And so affirming ministries uh, attempt to live very differently from that history and to say everybody is welcome no matter who you love, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're about. So uh, its focus has been always about that, uh, but because many other people experience marginalization, uh, the affirming ministry process invites congregations to look at other ways in which uh, folks are marginalized. And so very often uh, it will include vision uh, statements that intentionally say we're a welcoming space for people regardless of race or gender, or ability, or age, or economic circumstance. So it's a big process, but its emphasis is very much on LGBTQ2 people. Amazing. So how does the process begin? Is this a decision made by the reverend of the church, or would this be more of a community collaboration? It would be more of a community collaboration. I've had the privilege of being part of two congregations uh, before I moved to this one that were engaged in uh, an affirming process. Uh, and as an openly gay minister, I definitely was not the one to begin the process. Uh, that would have come across uh, not not in its best way. Uh, it becomes it becomes almost a vote on my ministry rather than a vote on what it really looks like for us to be a community that welcomes all. Uh, and so generally, it's, it's raised by the people of the congregation themselves. A, a group of them will say, hey, it's about time we made a public statement. Uh, lots of churches are open and inclusive uh, internally, but not necessarily externally being very strong public advocates of the LGBTQ2 community. 
So it was the members of your church that decided that they would become an affirming ministry six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the process began before that. It's it's generally the process takes one to two years. Uh, it takes a lot of conversation and discussion and sharing of stories and the sharing of hurts. Uh, oftentimes, uh, it's important to bring in folks from outside the community. Uh, given that churches have historically not been welcoming places for uh, uh, people w- within the sexual minority community, um, it means that oftentimes you're not going to have a whole lot of, of queer folks that are in the congregation. Right. And so it's important to, to invite people in so that there, there can be intentional intentional conversation. When the RHUC decided to become an affirming ministry, was there a vote that needed to be taken place? There was. Uh, I was was still in Alberta six years ago. Uh, So when they had that vote, as far as I understand, uh, it was pretty much unanimous. Amazing. Uh, and and that's usually what we, we hope for within an affirming process. You don't want it to be one which uh, further splits the community or further, uh, further marginalizes uh, queer folks who are within the congregation. Uh, and so you want as, as close to a, a unanimous as you can get. Right. That's great. Six years too late, but congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So now that you are an affirming ministry, what is the Richmond Hill United Church doing for Pride Month? Well, each each year for Pride Month, we we do a couple of things. Uh, We always march in the parade. Uh, That was really significant uh, when, of course, the parade was right along Young Street. Uh, We usually got lots and lots of folks would come out for that. Uh, And since it's been moved to Newmarket, the turnout perhaps is not as great because, you know, it's a long way away for folks. But uh, we always uh, have a large group of people who walk in the parade to say to everybody in in the queer community, hey, there are churches who will love and support and affirm and accept you and help you to flourish uh, in your life. And uh, I remember last year, uh, as we were walking down, a young man came out crying and just so thankful that, that we were in the parade uh, as a witness to, to a, a statement of inclusion and love. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And. And so in addition to that, the last couple of years, we have put a booth up uh, for the community fair, again, engaging the community. Uh, we always have our pride service, which is open to everybody just to celebrate what it means to be uh, a, a place of safety and welcome and inclusion. We've tried the last couple of years to have uh, lunches after the service so we can have conversation and build a stronger inclusive community with the with the LGBTQ folks. Great. So this pride service what <laughs> sort of, what what what's involved with that? Well, it it'll be uh, uh like any other worship service to a certain extent. Uh, a Christian worship service in the United Church of Canada is, is going to have some singing and some, some prayers. It's going to have readings. It's going to have a sermon. Uh, but the emphasis for, for the pride service is, of course, in, in what it means to be uh, a fully inclusive and welcoming, loving community. So 
this year. That, again, will be our focus. Um, there will be uh, some candle lighting where we try and involve uh, all the organizations from the community. Uh, we've invited PFLAG and AIDS Community York Region and uh, the folks from uh, York Region Pride Fest to help lead that uh, lighting of the uh, lighting of candles, which each one represents the the colors of the pride flag. Um, apart from that, it's just a, a wonderful celebration. There'll be uh, food and fun and uh, and friendship afterwards in the hall. I believe it's going to be rainbow colored cupcakes. Ooh. So who, I know who <laughs> doesn't want to come for that, right? <laughs> exactly. So where can people go to learn more about the RHUC and um, the programs that you all offer? Well, I mean, the easiest, of course, is just to go onto our website, www.rhuc.org, uh, or give us a phone call, uh, 905-884-1301. If you want to speak specifically to me, just wait for the menu of options and click on the button to, to come talk to me specifically. But uh, And we're on Facebook as well. We also have an Instagram account, so find us and uh, follow Amazing. And the Pride service that you mentioned, when is that happening? It is this coming Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Perfect. And we are, of course, on the corner of Center and Church, I mean, Center and Young Street uh, in Richmond Hill. Great. And you're in such a beautiful building, and I think it's a couple hundred years old. Uh, the congregation is a couple hundred years old. The building itself is 139 years old. It was mm. built in 1880. So still young. Still young, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, James. Well, it was a pleasure to chat with you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. And just before we go... A preview of the Taste of Asia Festival coming up on Canada Day weekend. Coming up in a couple of weeks is a very popular festival that is uh, quite famous within York Region and as well as Ontario. It is called the Taste of Asia. Now, to learn more about this wonderful festival, I have Dr. Ng with me here. He's one of the founders of the festival. Dr. Ng, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. Okay. So let's help the listeners know. Talk to me about the history of the Taste of Asia. How did it start? The Taste of Asia Festival was uh, started at the time in uh, 2003, at the time of the SARS, uh, was the height of the SARS outbreak. At that time, the economy was down significantly. People were not going out or going to the shopping malls and so on, uh, especially in the Chinese community, and so the economy was significant. But more than that is also the people were somewhat fearful of the Chinese, and then uh, at that time, a way of catching some sauce from them, it's like a yellow pearl, and the kids from coming home from school, and they're wondering why people were not suddenly not playing or get away from them because some other, sometimes the parents and other people tell them to uh, to avoid that. And so, of course, young people don't understand and all this comes and then there's a, so social 
as far as economic reasons. Uh, well, the community comes together and asking, see what we can do. And uh, also the, the city of Markham, I had the foresight of approaching the SCCM and talking. And, uh, well, one solution came out was to have an outdoor festival where people can come and go anytime and it's an open space and uh, uh, we have my multicultural performances and uh, as well as different food so kind of brings back the atmosphere of uh, with from the kind of depression hours to have some uh, liveliness and people do come out and also at the same time uh, share the good food and the entertainment and uh, also take away the fears and uh, misunderstanding as well too. So from there, some of those we was on uh, Kennedy and Steel, the same location where we have it for the past uh, 17 years and uh, people from there are able to go into more like Pacific Mall, Market Village and then uh, they they felt more comfortable in going back. So that And after that, as history people want to continue on, not to stop, and then to have the multicultural festivals from so we've been having it every year since then. Wow. Okay. So that's a great um, recap of of how it started. Um, to think that it even started um, from such a difficult time for the community, um, as you mentioned, socially, economically, and to see how it has flourished since then. Now, I believe it's in its 16th year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and now it's one of the most popular festivals um, in York Region and in Ontario. Can you talk to me as uh, how you feel being the founder um, and seeing how it started and seeing how it has evolved, how it, it feels for you to see um, the festival flourish like this? Well, it's uh, certainly it's, uh, great for many of us to see that happen to flourish uh, in terms of uh, the location being great, and, but the number of participants has grown over the years significantly, and uh, uh, in the past few years, we had over 150, 180,000 people this year coming through the whole three days. We have extended some festival from one day all the way to three days for weekend as well, too, So and then they during daytime, not just the nighttime, but also daytime and other times as well. People come and go from all age groups and uh, young and old and also some demographic changes as well to the Chinese community, but also uh, mainstream as well as uh, others. Over the years, we have invited partners with other, like the Association of Progressive Muslims of Canada. They participate and bring in different dimensions. We welcome them in because of the segregation of 9-11 for them to be active participants and also with the organization. So that's been, in the past 16 years, they've been uh, partnering with us. And uh, we have, in the last few years, we have had the uh, theme countries each one because uh, so that uh, have, uh, like uh, last year we had the Turkish and then uh, uh, this year we'll be looking at the Philippines as well one is to have a little bit more comprehensive on uh, performances from the different uh, groups and there so people can expose a little bit more of the cultures as well as the food we, we have gone with so many 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 variety of food there. like this year we have over 110 uh, this food food a different type, you know, from drinks, from exotic drinks, and uh, Cisco Bob, and uh, Korean food, and uh, which have been uh, very popular in the last few years with our sponsor, Galleria, and so on. So people can sample variety, and at the same time, some of the business people have opportunity to 
uh, able to uh, kind of uh, sample out to the people to test the market as well, some of the new products, new things that they have. And at the same time, some young entrepreneurs or other new uh, immigrants can do look at the business aspects, if they could do in their product or way of doing business, then some of them actually gone out back into doing their restaurants and other things from there. So it's, it's, it's a good experience for all of us and with the participation from so many different uh, variety of people in the three-level government always been participating. We have the opening ceremony on uh, usually on Saturday at 5 o'clock. We uh, basically honored by the ministers and then uh, the mayor, of course, from Markham and the councillors and um, many community leaders, they come and uh, this is a good way of not just to experience but also experience the interaction and also we're able to communicate and network with other people as well. Wow, okay, that is so beautiful. So even though it is, yes, called the Taste of Asia, there's definitely a multicultural aspect infused into the festival that makes it open to basically everyone. And um, it, it, it's quite beautiful just to, to see. And um, even you just explaining it already is getting me excited. So I, I love this. Um, what can residents then expect for this year? I know that for the Taste of Asia, uh, definitely international acts are a huge part of the festival. Um, what can residents expect um, in terms of those who will be participating and um, maybe anything new that they're adding this year? Well, the, this, as you mentioned, this year we are one of the Philippine country will be Philippine, we're featuring the Philippines. So on the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, the three days, we have different groups of Philippine uh, having some fashion show, from singing and dancing and uh, different aspects of it and so from Friday we have that, Saturday we have, and then uh, on Sunday as well too, we have the, uh, the Philippine Heritage Band that will be celebrating their 40th, 40th year and uh, doing performances in there. And also that's been the June 30th, the last day, so that, that we are also celebrating the Philippine Heritage Month, which is in the day proclaimers in June as well, and we're doing that in Taste uh, Asia. So that's ex- food and culture, but also we still have the traditional, many of the population of, uh, from Chinese descent have a variety of different food, even food like a, a special type of black tofu, something that people have to come and see, experience something new, and also even uh, like bulgogi, hot dog, so it's kind of like a fusion of the Korean and then the others as well, and also some of the uh, Japanese, uh, uh, like a street food something as well too, something new as well. Some people well, certainly uh, will be able to experience some variety of food without even going to Asia, and also have the atmosphere, the noise, the smell, the and also sounds that will be. Uh, experience just like an outing for the family and in addition of course you can sit down and rest and seeing some of the performances uh, we have the Chinese performance the lion dance and uh, also martial arts and then the children's the dancing the traditional cultural ones definitely this year also in addition we have the, the uh, we can have a little fusion of Philippine and Muslim uh, seniors there doing kind of special dance that will be kind of uh, showing the integration of the some of the com- community as well, acknowledging that. That's uh, 
on a Saturday we have that, and Sunday we have uh, the special two hours of the Afghan show from the Afghan women and children, and they, they actually is one big opportunity for them to have a feature in a big event like ours to showcase something that normally is not being done elsewhere. So that's uh, all those are exciting things for people to see. But also just walking around in there, I think there's opportunities shopping and see. We thank uh, even uh, for some prizes that's given and also the uh, support from like the, our presenting sponsor, TD Bank, will be having uh, their, their booth there so people can gain prizes and also we're able to win other things as well too. Wow. Okay. So I'm already excited just by how you're explaining all of the things. Uh, you had me already at black tofu. I think that's one of the things I'm going to make sure that I try. <laughs> that's going to be so exciting. Okay. Where can residents um, go for more information? And if maybe people want to volunteer, do they have the opportunity to do so? Yes, certainly. can uh, go to our website and then uh, you can get the information. www.fccmtoa.ca So that's the website. Or they can go in uh, at TASERHFS and the information is there and in our social media uh, as well. In uh, we'll, We actually even have some contests in the social media if they go in there uh, we gain some prizes leading up to that time. And we're also uh, happy to receive volunteers and sponsors and also information at our culture center, the our Mountain Chinese Culture Center of the FCCM is at the 905-946-1137, the phone number there. Awesome. Dr. Ng, thank you so much uh, for giving me all of the information that uh, is coming up for Taste of Asia this year. I know that it's always such a successful event, and it's not going to be any different this year. It's probably going to be even more successful than usual. Um, And again, I can't wait to taste some of that black tofu. Thank you so much, Dr. Ng. Okay, thank you. It's free admission. Everyone is welcome to the Taste of Asia. See you on the June 28th, 29th, and 30th. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.